Have you ever stopped and really think about that? Why you decided to be become a follower of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the answer to that question? It's a fair question. And one that every Christian should be able to answer really at any time. Growing up in a Christian culture, especially in this part of the country, in the Bible Belt, it was almost assumed for generations for the majority of people that you believed in Jesus and you attended church faithfully because really it had historically been a part of the very fabric, I think, of Southern heritage. And I think that it's in some ways a truly beautiful part of Southern culture, even though uh, probably in some cases calling yourself a Christian was more of a cultural norm than a spiritual reality. But even at that, the number of people across this nation who would readily admit those four words, I am a Christian, that number has been on a steady decline for many years now, according to the Pew Research Foundation in a report published in 2011. And according to the Barna Research Group, another study I was looking at, the number of Americans that claim to be absolutely committed to the Christian faith has dropped in one generation from 48% to 29%. The days of identifying ourselves as Christians simply because we grew up that way are rapidly vanishing. And what is left are those who have wrestled with this question and come out on the other end still able to confidently and unashamedly say those four words. I am a Christian. And that's not entirely bad, in fact. It may be quite good for the church as a whole, and it may end up producing a healthier church overall because uh, as the church, as a cultural institution, withers in popularity, what we're left with are those people who are here for reasons that transcend what is culturally acceptable. People whose convictions run deeper than what is culturally popular and whose faith is stronger than the other ever-shifting trends of society. And so rather than being alarmed or even discouraged by these types of reports, in a very honest way, I get a little bit excited when I hear or read these kinds of statistics because I personally believe that this is one way that God is separating what the Bible calls the wheat from the chaff. Those who claim to be Christians when it suits their image and those who actually are Christians. Please understand, I'm not talking about perfect people. Okay, we're all imperfect. Your pastor is an imperfect person. We're all imperfect. We all have been messed up in life. All right? We're not even talking about those outside the church. This letter in Revelation was written to the church. These are religious people. All right? who are not actually following Christ. And it's not that God isn't jealous for people's souls. He most certainly is, and we should be as well. Rather, it is the lukewarm that, that he says that he will spit out of his mouth. Those who play at being a Christian, who often are more than willing to take a lot of time and resources from the church without any real commitment to him or to his people. And, and that's not my rebuke, by the way. That's God's. He spells it out clearly in Revelation chapter 3. So being a Christian has really little to do with what is culturally acceptable at any given point in history. Remember the church in its early stages of development and again at several other points throughout history has been counter to the culture in just about every way possible. In fact 
a biblical scholar, Nancy Piercy, who's produced some fascinating research on the church, wrote, and quoting from her book, it is a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. That's fascinating to me because it suggests, according to the current statistical information that we have, that the church is poised to enter a significant time of growth as our faith and convictions increasingly become more in tension with the sensibilities of pop culture. Okay, that doesn't mean either that our job as disciple makers will get easier, rather more effective as we faithfully labor for the cause of Christ. In other words, being the church may become increasingly more difficult as our path and what is culturally popular continue to diverge. But we can also expect a greater result from our ministry as the cost of following Christ becomes greater. Why? Because those who say, I am a Christian... When they have nothing to lose by saying it, don't have to mean it if they don't want to. But the people who utter those words courageously and confidently when everything that they hold dear is at stake. Well, now, now we're talking about something different. We're talking about true followers of Christ who can accomplish anything in Him because to them Jesus is more valuable than anything else that they stand to lose. It's simply human nature to value that which is very costly far more than that which costs you nothing. Okay, in Matthew 13, 45 and 46, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the sea of fine pearls, in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So take heart as you hear about our culture drifting further away from the biblical principles that used to run through our nation's collective conscience because what it means for us is that it's an opportunity to become stronger as the church as the cost of becoming a part of it increases. All right, And again, this was a familiar theme throughout much of history uh, with the early church. To New Testament Christians, following Jesus was the sum of their entire existence. During the second century, Christianity was illegal. Believers were routinely imprisoned and tortured and killed. In the face of brutal martyrdom, these early Christians, when being questioned about who they were, where they came from, what their occupation was, they would routinely answer with nothing more than four words. I am a Christian. Knowing they were going to be tortured and killed, they would simply say, I am a Christian. Because nothing else needed to be said. One believer, when asked by his accusers, who are you? He replied, I have already said that I am a Christian. And he who says that has thereby named his country, his family, his profession, and all things besides. In other words, there's nothing else to tell. Because being a Christian defines every aspect of my life and being. And I've shared many stories with you in the past about these early followers of Christ staring down cruelties unimaginable to us. They would strap them to a chair, an iron chair that they would heat up in a fire 
and they would strap them down to this hot iron chair and make them run through a gauntlet of wild animals that would tear at their flesh. All they had to do to escape that was recant their faith in Christ. But these early Christians were perfectly content to stand their ground and simply say, I am a Christian. Nothing else needed to be said. And so as we continue working our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles, today we'll be studying chapter 12 in a message entitled, I Am a Christian. And we're going to talk a bit more about those four words and what they meant to these early disciples of Christ and what they mean to his followers today. So let's turn together, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Acts, chapter 12. And we're going to pick up right where we left off two weeks ago, and we'll start on verse 1. Okay, so chapter 12, Acts 12, 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Okay, so there are several men, first of all, named James that we read about in the New Testament. And three of them factor in most prominently. Two of them were apostles, original disciples of Christ. There was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also named, known as uh, James the Less. How would you like for that to be your nickname? <laughs> Not to be confused with James, the son of Zebedee, who was also a, uh, a brother of the apostle John. Okay, those two were part of the original 12 disciples, later apostles of Christ. And then there was James, the brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he also authored the book of James. Okay, and so... James here in our text that was martyred is referring to the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' original disciples. In fact, Jesus predicted, he prophetically spoke to James about the fact that he was going to suffer and die for being one of his followers in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 39, okay? There are also several Herods in the New Testament. Every time you read about a Herod, it isn't necessarily the same guy. The Herod here is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great. And he was a member of a line of horrible rulers over the Jews. Okay, Herod the Great murdered his own wife. He murdered several of his sons and other relatives because he was power crazy. And the apple didn't fall far from the tree with his sons and grandsons, as we see here with Agrippa I. This killing of James and then the subsequent arrest of Peter, which was with full intention of killing him as well, was a power play by the king. Herod, who should have been called Herod the Vain, because he was completely full of himself and he was bent on removing anyone who didn't recognize him as Lord, the ultimate authority in his or her life. This was the height of arrogance as he persecuted and killed these Christians because they would only recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. They would only say, I am a Christian. And to further prove the point, as soon as he saw how much killing a disciple of Christ pleased his constituency, he sets out to do the same thing to Peter. The Herods were all about power and popularity. And although Herod was religious, these arrests and killings were not about making some kind of attempt to, to please God. This was an attempt to please the Jews. This was all about maintaining influence and increasing his power. And as we read these accounts of Christians being murdered in such shocking and, and unjust ways, and it, it can seem so far removed from our reality, I think, to the point it's possible for these stories to become for us nothing more than just a history lesson. But in truth, this is very much like 
what ISIS or the Islamic State is doing right now in Iraq, which is, by the way, not too far away from where these events occurred in Acts 12. There are, in fact, striking similarities in the motivations and the methods of these first century rulers of the Jews who persecuted Christians and ISIS who persecutes the followers of Jesus today. Just like the Herods, these terrorists are delusional reprobates who see potential opportunity to seize control of others in mass and so drunk on their own aspirations of power and control and so full of themselves and of the devil, they're cutting the heads off of anyone who won't bow to their will. And so, of course, they target followers of Christ. Why? Because just like Herod, they feel threatened by the power of God that dwells within his followers. And yet even more astonishing to me, than the evil demands of these murderers is the sheer volume of Christians who refuse to renounce Christ knowing that they're going to be killed. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You're sitting in your home and armed men kick in the door and hold your family at gunpoint and demand that you renounce Jesus Christ or have your head cut off. How many of us would stand firm and say, I am a Christian in that moment as they hold the knife to the necks of your wife and kids. I can't imagine it, and yet it's going on every day. But here's some really good news, and it should bring us comfort when times are uncertain, even for us, and downright bad sometimes. If you can truly say those four words about yourself, I am a Christian, that means that God is sovereign over your circumstances. Okay? I know it doesn't always feel that way, but it is the truth. God is sovereign. That that means He rules over everything. Not most things, not just the good things, and not simply when we're cooperating with Him, and certainly not only when we understand what He's up to. No, God is sovereign. He rules over everything. Everything, And that has got to be settled in your heart and in your mind, particularly in hard times. Psalm 103, 15 through 19 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows, knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, And remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over what? Over all. Okay, that word kingdom. In verse 19 in the Hebrew is the word malkuth. And it is literally translated as sovereign power and dominion. And the word all in that same verse is the Hebrew word kol. It means totality or everything. So we could read verse 19 this way. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereign power and dominion rules over the totality of everything. That means that God is sovereign, not only over your good times, but he very much rules over all of your struggles as well. There's never a point in which he loses control. There are a lot of people, Christians, who believe that. God's just up there in heaven. The world has run amok. And someday he'll come back and and make things right. No, that's not what the Bible says. He is in complete control at all times. And we see that represented here in our text in the next couple of verses. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. He's talking about Peter. 
delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, so verse 3 says this was during the days of unleavened bread which encompassed the seven days following the Passover meal, which was considered to be a holy week. So it, it couldn't be desecrated by an execution, which ends up working to Peter's benefit because he's kept alive in prison while the church was praying for him rather than just being killed right away like James was earlier. Okay, Sometimes God, in his ultimate sovereignty, works through our circumstances. If you just read quickly through this passage, it looks as if Peter is sort of unfortunately rotting in prison for no good reason. But the fact is, he's being kept alive because he was arrested during a holy week, which buys him some time, and it's critical time, because the church was able to use that temporary stay of execution to earnestly pray for him. And we know the power of prayer. We not only read about it throughout the scriptures, but we've seen it firsthand in our church, haven't we? How many times have we prayed for people? By the way, Randy Connectel, my friend, a pastor in Columbia whose son was in a motorcycle accident. Many of you have been praying for him. His foot was severed from the ankle down. They reattached it and they said, look, there's going to be lots and lots of surgeries. He's probably going to lose his foot. Infection is almost guaranteed. This is a long shot. And what happened? Randy, a pastor, called all of his pastor buddies. And we called all of our church people. And there have been a ton of people praying for him. And I got a report yesterday that after the, they reattached the leg, the doctors came in and said, I don't get it. But we don't have to do the next surgery. Everything seems to be reattaching itself. And there's not a, a hint of infection in his entire body. I believe in the power of prayer and the power of healing. It's all God gets all the glory, right? We don't. God works through circumstances that are delaying Peter's execution to allow the church time to offer earnest prayer on his behalf, which ultimately, as we'll see, gets him delivered from this situation. But why would God bother to allow Peter to go through all of that to begin with, right? If it's not Peter's time to die... Why even allow him to go through all of that? And once he is thrown in prison, why bother delaying things so the church can pray? I mean, if you're God, and you're going to release him from prison anyway, why the big song and dance? Psalm 103.19 is precisely why. Because God isn't only sovereign over certain things. He's sovereign over all things. And if you've lived for any amount of time, beyond childhood, you've probably experienced many times in your life how circumstances that you go through almost never only affect you. In other words, when we go through situations in life, difficult situations especially, there are almost always other people who are affected by that situation. Even, even when the most immediate outcome of that circumstance is directed uh, primarily or even entirely t at you, there are still others being affected by just about everything that happens to us. Our kids may be affected, our spouse, our neighbors, our coworkers, our teachers, and on and on and on it goes. There's generally a ripple effect to situations that we go through. And because God is sovereign over all of it, there are potentially dozens or hundreds or even thousands of other considerations for God in every situation that we may know little to nothing about. 
But he knows everything about everyone who is or will or might be affected by every situation. And he's sovereign over all of it. And so this is where trusting in God becomes very real and very important because we can't always see the big picture. But he always does. And he knows how every detail of every circumstance in our lives affects everyone else. And he's ultimately in control of all of that. Right? We know the often quoted Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So even though we don't always understand what he's doing, we can rest in the knowledge that he's ultimately acting on our behalf, even if that means sitting in prison a little while longer. And if we keep reading this Romans passage, we see some of that ripple effect that we're talking about. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, Every circumstance has an ongoing, continuing effect, not only in our lives, but often in the lives of many others that we may know nothing about. And so it's important that we trust Him in those times, believing that in the end, He's working it all out to the benefit of all of those who love Him. I think we have a tendency sometimes to project our own securities onto God. And we don't necessarily do that consciously, but that's essentially what's happening when we don't trust Him to be sovereign over our circumstances. But just because we don't understand doesn't mean that He's not in control. Okay? God is sovereign over your circumstances. Another great lesson that we learned from our story today is that when you can honestly say, with conviction, I am a Christian, that means you can be at peace in every circumstance. Because we know that God is sovereign. And we know that He's working all things together for good. And by the way, don't confuse good with easy or pleasant or comfortable or even safe. Eek. Sometimes what's good for us is what's easy and pleasant and comfortable and safe. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes what's best for us comes by way of hardship. And Jesus never promised anyone an easy life. At least not in this world. But easy living was never the point anyway. Following Jesus has always been this concoction of blessing and struggle and joy and hardship and risk and reward. It's a mixed bag to be sure, but it's all part of the honing process that he uses to shape us into the men and women that he wants us to be. And no matter how hard your circumstance may become, you can be at perfect peace if you're a Christian because you know that he's sovereign over all of it. Okay, let's keep reading and we'll talk more about this. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around, around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter was still half asleep. 
When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is one of my favorite parts of this story, because Peter, who's been locked up in prison in the worst way, he's chained, he's chained up twice, both wrists, shackled between two guards. And by the way, let me tell you, prison in the first century was no picnic. Okay? They didn't have workout rooms and running tracks and libraries and televisions and cafeterias. In fact, often the only way that prisoners were fed and clothed at all was if family and friends brought them food and clothing. The authorities often provided nothing for prisoners. And so here's Peter chained up in a bad way, awaiting his execution. And it's not as if he knew somehow he'd be delivered and spared from a horrible death. James had just been killed. There's absolutely no reason to believe that Peter expected anything less. Now, how many of us in that situation would be getting a good night's rest? Really, there's no way we would sleep a wink. But here's Peter sawing logs. He, he's in such a deep sleep, such a deep state of rest, that when the light beams down into his cell and lights up the room, and an angel appears next to him, the angel has to punch him in the side to get him to wake up. He was out cold. And then the angel wasn't messing around. He wanted Peter to move with haste. Okay, men in those days wore this long outer garment and it would extend down to their ankles like a woman's dress would today. These long coverings. And so when men went into battle, or if they were going to participate in some kind of sport, they would hike the garment up and tighten a belt around it so they could run and the belt would hold it in place so they could pump their knees and their legs to run. That's what's called the girding of their loins. And the purpose was to free up their legs and knees so they could run faster. If you look at this passage in the original language, this is what the angel was telling Peter to do. He literally said to Peter, gird yourself and put on your sandals. That meant get your clothes tied up and get your shoes on because we're getting ready to run out of here. All right? And then as they make their way past the guards, out of the jail, into the city, Peter hasn't even wholly woken up yet. He's still half asleep. Down a city street. He's halfway out of it the whole time. He doesn't really wake up until the angel leaves. This guy was at peace with the circumstances. Have you ever experienced someone who can sleep through anything? You know what I'm talking about? It never ceases to amaze me because if I hear a cricket sneeze, I wake up. I'm not sure crickets actually sneeze, but if they did, it would wake me up. But I know people that see, it's like they could sleep through a tornado if they were in the middle of it. In fact, Mary Beth and I are friends with a couple, and uh, the guy, the husband, he's kind of, he was, he's lost a lot of weight now. He was a really big guy, loved to eat, loved desserts, donuts, cake, that sort of thing, and he was just a big eater, he was a big guy, and his wife is about this big around, and we're good friends, and they were telling us one night, she said, I, you know, I brought home this box of six big eclairs, these big, long donuts with chocolate on top and custard in the middle. And I explained to my husband, I said, look, these are for the party tomorrow night. They're having a party for one of their kids, and these are for the girls, so don't touch them. 
you can't have one. And he said, that's fine, that's no problem. And they got ready for bed that night. She put them in the refrigerator and they went to sleep. She said she woke up in the morning and walked into the kitchen to make some coffee and all she could see down the front of the refrigerator smeared was chocolate. <laughs> and then on the floor in front of the refrigerator was this eclair box opened up and empty with just crumbs inside. And she's trying to figure out if the kids got into him. She's like, what happened? She walks back in the bedroom to wake her husband up and ask him. And she looks down and she said, his mouth is open, he's asleep. And he's got chocolate and custard <laughs> all over his face and his beard and everything. And she woke him up and she said, what did you do? And he said, what are you talking about? She said, what's wrong with you? He said, I don't know. I mean, my stomach kind of hurts, but I don't know why. <laughs> And she's, you know, giving him the, uh, the what for. And he was completely asleep, walking in his sleep, he claims. <laughs> he went in and sat down on the floor in front of the refrigerator and ate every one of those eclairs and then went back to bed and never woke up. So that's kind of how Peter was sleeping. But how? I mean, really, how is he able to sleep so soundly? You talk about a difficult and seemingly hopeless circumstance, and yet in the face of certain death, Peter is utterly defiant of the temptation that most of us would feel to fret, to worry, to have a nervous breakdown, but not Peter. He snuggles up next to his two guard buddies and conks out. I can almost picture him with his head on the one guy's shoulder and a little drool coming out on his chin. He's at perfect peace in the middle of one of the great storms of his life. Don't you want to be that way? Don't you want to be able to stare down the most difficult circumstance in your life and say, you know what? God's got this. I'm going to go to bed. Man, I do. I love that. This is such a great picture of peace in the midst of turmoil, and it is born out of an implicit trust in the sovereignty of God, absolute confidence that God has everything under control. And this is something we all need to learn. This is something I've been learning. Okay, when people and circumstances conspire against you, and they will, you can either fall apart and be of little to no use to anyone, or you can resolve to trust in the sovereignty of God and be at peace with that, knowing that he's going to accomplish his purposes in the end, so we might as well get a good night's rest. Okay, God is sovereign of your circumstances, and by trusting in that, you can experience perfect peace in every circumstance. And just a word quickly about learning to trust Him. The way that we learn to trust Him is by trusting Him. Okay? The way that you learn how to swim is by getting in the pool and trusting that your mom or dad or whoever's teaching you to swim is not going to let you drown. But you can't learn to swim without getting in the pool. And likewise, you'll never learn to trust God until you test the waters. We have to be willing to get wet to get a little bit uncomfortable because as long as we hold on to our safety net, our fear, our anxiety, and particularly our control of the situation, we'll never experience what it truly means to totally trust in God. We learn to trust God when we have no other alternative. That's why people who have been through a lot of hardship often have the most amazing faith in Him because they've been in situations where they had no choice but to trust in God. And unless you allow yourself to be in those situations from time to time where you have to trust Him, it's much harder for your faith, your trust in God to become strong, okay? Now, 
We're going to continue on here. And as we move ahead in our story, and I'll move quickly, we find that for those who can honestly claim, I am a Christian, God answers prayer. All right? In this very well-known passage in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God's all about answering the prayers of his children. It may not always be the answer that we're looking for, but he answers nonetheless, and his answer will always be to the working of all things together for the good of those who can honestly say, I am a Christian. Well, what about James? I mean, obviously, the same church people who were praying for Peter clearly had to have been praying for James before he was killed. So how do we reconcile that with the statement that God answers our prayers? Because they were surely praying for James, and he was killed anyway. We reconcile that with the understanding that sometimes God's answer is no. We don't always understand, again, God's responses to our prayers. Because there's often a lot more going on than we're aware of. So we don't know why God chose to let James be killed. Although it's probably worth noting here that death for any Christian is an instant upgrade. Right? So it certainly wasn't a bad thing for James to pass from this life into eternity with Jesus Christ. But for the people left behind, it was heart-wrenching. The answer to their prayers for God to spare James's life was no. And we don't like to hear no. Nobody wants to hear the answer, no. And yet as we study the result, the outcome of the heavy persecution of the first century church, what we find is that the persecution is what led to many thousands coming to Christ. In fact, the stoning of Stephen spurred the spreading of the church to the ends of the earth. God used a horrible event to a profoundly important end, and it positively affected the lives of untold scores of people for hundreds of years after that. Jesus prayed for the cup of crucifixion to be taken for him. And God's answer was no. And he used that horrible event to, profoundly, uh, to a profoundly important end that has obviously affected scores of people throughout the centuries. It gives us the opportunity for eternal life that we would not have otherwise had. So you see, even when the answer isn't what we're looking for, God is still accomplishing His purposes through us. He still answers. So we can take some solace in knowing that even if the answer is no in the end, God is still going to accomplish His will in us as we remain humbly submitted to Him. Okay? Unfortunately, often his answer is yes. Let's keep reading and we'll see that. Verse 12. When he realized this and he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, and when he knocked at the door of the gate, the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, <laughs> but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter 
who's still outside, by the way, continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Okay, this is my other favorite part of the story. All these Christians are huddled together in an, an intense prayer meeting at Mary's house. And they're praying God would deliver Peter from prison. And then he shows up at the door. And Rhoda is so excited that she doesn't even let him in. She takes off to tell the others that everything they've been praying for has just been granted. Peter is here. So while he's standing outside knocking, Rhoda informs the prayer group that they can stop praying. Our prayers have just been answered. And instead of celebrating and thanking God, they look at her and say, you're out of your mind. <laughs> I have to tell you that this part of the story makes me feel just a little bit better about myself. <laughs> How many times do we pray for something, but we don't really believe it's going to happen? I've done that many times, actually. I know I should pray about something, so I do, but I'm not at all convinced that he will actually say yes to my prayer. And I would feel a lot worse about that except for the fact that here are these first century champions of the faith. These super Christians who have been through so much hardship and persecution and they walked with Jesus and they saw miracles like no one had ever seen before. These are our role models. And as soon as one of their own declares that everything they've been praying for has just happened, they totally dismiss it because they don't believe her. They're ready to keep on praying for Peter to be released. Meanwhile, he's standing outside knocking on the door. It's a funny picture, not only because Peter's stuck outside, but because of the truth that it conveys that even the strongest of believers sometimes lack the faith that we should have. How many times has God come through in our lives? How many miracles have we seen him accomplish? How faithful has he been to meet our needs? And yet we still doubt him sometimes, don't we? I do. I do. Sometimes I do. My faith has yet to be perfected. And when I read this story, it makes me chuckle and honestly feel a little better about the fact that we are all still being worked on by God. None of us has arrived. And you know what? That's okay. Anytime we talk about prayer, also, there's usually one question that comes up, and that is, what if I haven't received an answer yet? What if I haven't heard yes or no? The appropriate response in that case is to keep praying. I'm sure you've heard the acronym PUSH, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. That's true, and that's what the early church did. They would gather, and they would pray until God answered. Jesus repeated his prayer over and over in the Garden of Gethsemane until the Father said no. Paul repeated his prayer over and over to be delivered from his affliction, and the Father said, my grace is sufficient for you. And the church at Mary's house continued to pray over and over until Peter showed up, even though it took them a while to realize it. Okay? So don't give up on praying. We keep praying until you get your answer. And you will. Because God answers the prayers of his children. Okay? And we're going to finish up our text this morning with one more point. And this is a really important one. When you begin to truly live according to this description of yourself, Everything else in your life will be overshadowed by these four words. I am a Christian. There is no other phrase, no other description of a person that carries so much with it. 
than these four words. That phrase, when truly lived out, affects everything and everyone around you. Nothing can or does remain the same in our lives or for those around us because of what those words mean. We're now followers of Jesus Christ, and that is something when authentically lived out that cannot be ignored. In fact, we should exude Christ in every aspect of our lives so tangibly that when we utter that phrase, I am a Christian, nothing else would need to be said. Because everyone who hears it would know exactly what that means, who we are, what we care about, how we love, how we live, and what we're living for. I am a Christian. Nothing else should have to be said. Okay, let's finish our chapter, and then I'll close. Verse 18. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This was a common Roman practice at the time. Soldiers who lost their prisoners were subject to the same penalty uh, that had been assigned to the prisoner originally. Okay, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. And actually, if you read uh, Josephus, uh, a Jewish scholar at the time, uh, he talks about the sparkling silver shiny robe that Herod used to put on, that the sun would sparkle off of when he would speak to, to bring all of the attention and focus on himself. It's fascinating. 22, and the people were shouting the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I guess that didn't work out. But the word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The key difference between Christians and those who are not is whom we're living for and whom we point people to. Jesus is the difference. When the people begin to worship Herod, he's all too happy to receive all the praise and honor because he was living for himself. His focus was on himself. And yet in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet and begins to worship him, Peter says to Cornelius, stand up. I too am a man. And what really makes that statement by Peter significant, you'll remember from our study of chapter 10, is the fact that Cornelius was a Gentile, an uncircumcised, unclean Gentile. But Peter was a Jew. It would have been expected by all good Jews at that time for Peter to look down on Cornelius. But Peter says, no, no, I'm just like you. And then he tells Cornelius all about Jesus. Because Peter isn't living for himself. He's living for Christ. And this is where the rest of the world should see the biggest difference between the general population and those who claim, I am a Christian. Okay? It should be so overwhelmingly obvious to everyone that Christians are different because we don't live for ourselves. We live for Christ and we give our lives away for the sake of each other. That message should be the clarion call of the church and it should be expressed predominantly in how we live our lives in front of the rest of the world every day to the point where anytime we meet someone new and say those four words, 
I am a Christian. Nothing else would need to be said because they would know exactly what that means. Oh, you're one of those people. Those people who live for Jesus and seem to genuinely love everyone that they meet. Those people that give their lives away for each other constantly, that help people all the time, that seem genuinely concerned for others, even total strangers. Those people that perform unbelievable acts of kindness and sacrifice all the time, and yet they're the same people that never take any personal credit for any of it. Yeah, I know exactly who you are. You're a Christian. And I know what that means because it's obvious to everyone around you. Look, that lifestyle is radical. It is counter to the cultural norms of our society. And it is exactly the life that is modeled for us in Scripture by these early Christians. Why do you think that thousands of people were being added to the church every day? Because people in mass were fed up with the selfish, self-destructive, self-centered, self-serving, self-everything society that they were living in. And they saw something radically and beautifully different in everyone who said those four words. I am a Christian. Nothing else needed to be said. So I just want to end this service this morning by saying those four words out loud together. And maybe the ring of it in our ears this morning will resonate differently, maybe deeper than it has before. Can we say that together? I am a Christian. Let's say it again. I am a Christian. What do those four words mean to you? Do they define you? Do they govern the greatest decisions in your life? Do they determine your activity, your plans, your vocation? your relationships, the way you spend your time, your money, your energy, do those four words stir a passion inside of you? Let's say it again. I am a Christian. Consider the sheer weight of that statement. The price that so many have paid to be able to say those words. Following Jesus Christ means giving everything to Him. There's no room in that statement. For half-heartedness or insincerity, it is absolutely an all-or-nothing proposition. Let's say it again. I am a Christian. There aren't another four words in our language that when spoken about yourself can convey the totality of who you are, what you believe, what you're all about, what you live for. There is no equivalent descriptor that can even come close to those four words. Let's say it again. I am a Christian. One more time. I am a Christian. Nothing else needs to be said. Let's pray.